I invite you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the 28th chapter. Our scripture reading this morning will be verses 1 through 9. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 9. Here is God's word. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then quickly and go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. A great shadow has departed. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, these are the words of Gandalf as he attempts to encourage a confused hobbit, the fat one named Sam. The conversation takes place after the great battle for the Ring of Power and Samwise Gamgee is injured. He hears the voice of Gandalf. He thought Gandalf had fallen into an abyss and died and a beautiful conversation ensues. Here's how Tolkien renders it. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Sam lay back and stared with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? To which Gandalf replied, a great shadow has departed. And then the wizard laughed. The sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. He himself burst into tears, and then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up, and laughing he sprang from bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. Listen, I feel like spring after winter, sun on the leaves, 
and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. What Tolkien is trying to get to is the beautiful power when darkness passes. Tolkien even created a word for it. He called it eucatastrophe. If you've never heard of that word, it's because Tolkien made it up. He took the word catastrophe, something bad, and added the prefix "u" to it for good to represent the kind of moment when unexpected goodness emerges against the backdrop, backdrop of something bad. Tolkien is capturing this idea of victory after suffering, glory after trial, light after darkness, goodness after evil. That's a central theme to the Lord of the Rings, but that's not just the theme from the Lord of the Rings. That's the central message of the Bible. In fact, I would argue that Tolkien's theme, eucatastrophe, actually has its roots in the scriptures. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive. And the point of Matthew 28 is that there is hope after darkness because Jesus is alive. You can boil down everything I'm gonna say today in that simple statement, there's hope after darkness because Jesus is alive. So if you came today without a lot of hope or if you know there's hope but you don't feel like there's hope, this is a great time to be in church, great Sunday to come. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you're trying to figure out how do I figure out what I'm hoping in and where true hope really lies, maybe your life's been a train wreck in the last number of months and it's like God's trying to get, you attention, get your attention, newsflash friend, he is. There's hope after darkness because Jesus is alive. What I wanna do today is walk through this account in Matthew's gospel unpack the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how Matthew presents it, and then help us to understand why the resurrection is such good news with four particular points or observations. So we're gonna start with the depth of darkness. We're gonna go back and we're gonna look at where the resurrection is set in context in this particular book. So if you have a Bible, we need to go back to Matthew 27, previous chapter, beginning in verse 45, and to see the dark back backdrop, it says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So we're gonna, we're gonna set the resurrection in this context. It's really important to understand this because you can't really appreciate the significance of the resurrection if you don't fully embrace the horror of what happened prior on a hill called Golgotha. If you're here on this Easter Sunday and you're not a Christian, it might be helpful for you to know that this setting of hope in the midst of darkness is a central theme of the Bible. It's really the story of everybody who puts their faith in Christ. The remarkable story and the reason why the good news is good is because Jesus rescues us from something. Redemption requires a need. 
Salvation is glorious because of what we are delivered from. And so the message of the Bible rests on two critical and important truths. First, that all of us are sinners. We're people desperately in need of redemption because of the depth of our depravity. And secondly, that Jesus provides atonement. He provides the means by which our sins can be forgiven. So those are two critical and important truths, all of which are summarized in the message of the good news. We're sinners and we need atonement. So the dark backdrop of our lives is how the gospel becomes really clear. Text tells us from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. This would have been from noon to 3 p.m. Brightest part of the day. What's the point? The point here is that God is making a public statement about divine judgment. The cross was God pouring out his wrath over sin upon his son. It's a public statement about how seriously God takes sinful rebellion. This this darkness is meant to picture the foreboding judgment of God and this approaching death of Jesus in chapter 27 is the greatest judgment of God upon sin. Here is the sinless son of God hanging between heaven and earth who's going to absorb the fullness of God's wrath for sin. So it's no wonder that darkness comes. Matthew 27 tells us that after three hours of this darkness, At about 3 p.m. on that Friday, Jesus cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes a lament psalm, Psalm 22. Because of how he said it in Hebrew, Eli, Eli, people in the crowd thought that he was calling for Elijah. They missed it. The point was that he was being forsaken meaning that he was experiencing the separation that comes by virtue of the punishment for sin. Jesus was absorbing punishment that he didn't deserve because indeed he was sinful, sinless rather, and God is pouring out on him the punishment for sin that would then be able to be applied to those who so desperately need it, those sinners unlike him. And in this moment, Jesus is experiencing the departing presence of the Father. He's not wavering here in his commitment to finish the calling that God had placed upon him, but rather he's acknowledging the painful separation from the Father, the painful separation that began in the garden when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way, when they suddenly knew that they were naked, when they hid from God, and then were banished from the Garden of Eden. Jesus in this moment is absorbing the wrath of God, embracing the consequences of sinful humanity such that the Apostle Paul, looking at this event years later, would say that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He experienced the full cup of the consequences, the terrifying and agonizing separation from the Father. Verse 50, chapter 27, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, and the text tells us that he yielded up his spirit. Luke 23 records Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here is the unthinkable, that the sinless, perfectly righteous Son of God would not only suffer, but that he, 
The Son of God would experience the single most defining, most utterly reprehensible effect of a sin-cursed world, namely death. To say that Jesus died is an outrageous statement. The sinless Son of God experienced the one thing that's the consequence of rebellion against the Holy God. His death, however, is not a moment of defeat. It is rather the willing giving of a gift that will eventually bring great victory. But the fact that death is in the world is an incredible incredibly important statement that there's something wrong with the world. When you go to a funeral, even if it's called a celebration of life, and I'm not against rehearsing the great memories that we had with a loved one, retelling of the stories that brought us such great delight, but when we gather at a funeral, we are reminded that something is wrong with the world. It shouldn't be that people that you love and do life with and have lives intertwined with and have great memories with are suddenly taken from you and you no longer are able to see them. There's something about that that is tragically wrong. Every funeral is meant to be a statement to human beings that Something in the world needs to be fixed. The Bible tells us that death and sin are absolutely linked together. Funerals are a reminder that the world is broken and that we are broken, which is why Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived on the earth, said it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to funerals than parties. Do you know why? Because you learn more at funerals. You think, where's my life headed? What are people gonna say at my funeral? What am I doing investing my life? Like what really matters, what really counts? Funerals remind us that life isn't as certain as we often think. Here is Jesus who dies. Verse 51, there's an earthquake, rocks are split, the curtain of the temple, that symbol of separation between God and mankind, between the holy of holies and the holy place, the temple is torn in two. At Jesus' death, tombs were opened at his resurrection. Some of the saints were resurrected with him. What Matthew is trying to do here is to help us understand this is a massive cosmic collision that's taking place. This is not just the singular death of a prophet. This is the crucifixion of the Son of God. It's the pouring out of God's wrath upon him in order so that forgiveness could be offered. A centurion standing by sees all of what is happening and says, Truly, this was the Son of God. Watching in the distance, verse 55, are a number of women who are part of Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene, a woman who had been delivered from demon possession. Can you imagine? Her life tormented by the presence of demons until she met Jesus. Her entire life defined by this moment when she found deliverance. These women are grieving the death of Jesus. They'll become featured characters in the resurrection narrative, and Matthew inserts them to demonstrate their faithfulness. We see a man named Joseph in verse 57 of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a man who has political influence, goes to Pilate, gets the body of Jesus, and is able to put him in a tomb. That's important because often crucifixion victims were placed in the dump 
a trash heap, but Jesus is buried. A great stone is rolled over the entrance, and in verses 62 to 66, we see the final collusion of the religious leaders and the Roman government together. The religious leaders convince Pilate that he needs to put a security force at the tomb because he wouldn't want that myth of Jesus being raised from the dead to happen as his disciples come and steal his body away. And in an ironic twist, Pilate says, Go make the tomb as secure as you can. (laughs) That's a silly statement. Here's Pilate with all of his authority. He's going to put a little wax seal on the tomb and put his little ring in there as if that little wax seal and all of the authority it represents is going to hold back the king of kings and lord of lords. You may have something in your life right now that seems absolutely overwhelming. Power that somebody else has, the system that you live in, may feel like everything sort of tipped one particular direction. Maybe you're under a crushing experience of feeling like the forces of life are just kind of pressing down upon you. Can I just remind you that In a moment, that little Roman seal is going to get blown apart, and Jesus, it's going to be very evident that no seal can hold him. Can I remind you that, for those of you who are Christians, that Jesus, he's able to handle anything that's going on in your life. You may have come to Easter Sunday feeling a bit disconnected from the reality, the emotional reality of the resurrection in your life. And as you're gonna see in a moment, it's a a stunning story. Not only is it historically true, but it, it means today you can just take a deep breath, Christian, and know that if Jesus conquered death, you don't think he can take care of your job? You don't think he can handle your marriage? You don't think he can handle the wayward kids in your life? You don't think he can handle the anxiety and depression you're walking through? doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean we like, just wave a magic wand and it's all done. But it means that there's a king who's alive, who can bring hope because he helps after darkness. Resurrection narrative in verse 1 of chapter 28 helps us to see the hope now that floods in at dawn. On, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, after the Sabbath, in verse one, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Previously, we left them in verse 61. They're sitting opposite the tomb as it's sealed. You can imagine they're, they're looking at that sealed tomb thinking, what just happened? We've given our life to this man? And we've seen him brutalized and killed. He, he, it appears that he's lost. That's verse 61 of chapter 27. They go to see the tomb, perhaps with, for burial spice purposes, also because they're mourning. Verse 2 tells us, behold, there was a great earthquake. So here we have another earthquake that happens, similar to the events surrounding Jesus' death. God uses these earthly tremors in order to get our attention. We find that the angel descends from heaven. He comes and he rolls back the stone and notice that he sits on it. This would be a nice place to sit. 
Note that he rolls back the stone not so that Jesus could walk out. Jesus is already gone. The stone is rolled back so that you can come in and see. The angel rolls back the stone for your benefit, not for his benefit. Jesus already vacated the premises. Now it's your opportunity to see. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. The stone is rolled. The angel's appearance is shocking. He's described as like lightning, so bright, clothing white as snow. The effect is the guards, these Roman guards, there to keep it as secure as they can, have fainted. They're on the ground in fear and in shock. That silly seal of Rome is broken. The angel speaks to the women and here's what he said. Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The angel in this moment announces in two verses the very heart of what is called the gospel. Namely, that Jesus was crucified, but that he conquered death and now is alive. The angel says he was raised from the dead as he said. In other words, he's not a fraud. He's not an imposter. What Jesus said actually happened. He really was the son of God. He really was able to forgive sins. He really was able to draw men to himself. And not only was he all of these things, church, he still is all of these things. He is right now. He is the Son of God. He is able to forgive sins. He is able to draw men to himself. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just that it happened. It is that he is in this very moment very much alive. Seated on the throne is the God-man. The God-man whose hands you could touch who's as real and as alive as the person next to you right now. In verse eight, these women, they leave quickly from the tomb with this news. The text says that they left with fear and great joy. What a great combination that Matthew puts together here. Fear and great joy, frightening joy. It's the kind of emotion that you feel when you know something's amazingly true and yet really serious. It's life-changing and a really big deal. Can you think of moments in your life when you've experienced fear and great joy? I often have really good seats at weddings. (laughs) And I sense a lot of fear and great joy when I'm standing next to a groom and the bride comes down the aisle and he locks eyes with the father of the bride and sees this glorious gift that's coming down the altar, down the aisle rather, there's fear and great joy. Oh my goodness, this is unbelievable and oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. It's the feeling that I had when I held twin boys in my arms. 
They were six pounds, seven ounces, and six pounds, 11 ounces. I couldn't believe they fit in my wife's womb. And I'm so happy that they're there and so scared out of my mind. Remember my, I remember my wife asking me one time, why, why do you feel that? And I'm like, because I got to provide for these hungry boys. I'm so excited, but I'm scared out of my mind. Great moments in your life are usually the merging of fear and joy. Get a new job, so excited, and you're like, I hope they never figure out that I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> right? A new relationship, a friend, a new connection, you think, oh man, this could be it. Opportunity to make a pitch that you are really hoping for, man, this could, this could be a game changer for my year. A new relationship, you're like, I don't know. He actually listened to me over coffee. I haven't met someone like that in a long time. Who knows where this is going? Fear and great joy. However, on the way back, something amazing happens. This is, this is a game-changing moment, a life-changing moment for these women but it says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> greetings. It's like Jesus shows up and like, no big deal. I mean, like I told you, greetings. He doesn't show up and go, surprise, or it's me, or what do you think, right? It's Greetings, greetings. The reason Matthew has this in here is not to make a big deal about what Jesus says, but what the women do. Notice this, it's precious. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They saw him, they heard him, and the response was immediate. They fell down, took hold of his feet. Can you imagine? Put yourself in their shoes. You followed Jesus for three years. You've traveled with him from Jerusalem, to Jerusalem rather, to the Passover. You watched in horror as he was taken into custody, as he was beaten, as he was crucified. You were there as he breathed his last. You heard the painful cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then since that event at Golgotha, your whole world has come apart. Everything was lost. Everything is pointless. You believe the lie. He said he was going to win. He lost. And then he's there right in front of you to be able to see him and to touch him and to hear him say greetings. It's one thing to have the tomb be empty. It's another thing to touch the resurrected Jesus. He was everything to these women, and now he's alive, and it's no wonder they fell down in worship. Can I remind you, if you're a Christian, there's one day that's coming in your future when you will see him with your own eyes. He'll be as real as I am in this moment and as the people sitting next to you. You'll be able to touch his hands and wrap your arms around his neck. You'll be able to talk with him and laugh with him and cry with him and he with you. He'll be able to remind you of all the difficulties you endured in this lifetime, the words that you refused to speak when you were spoken against, and he'll say to you, I heard them, and I'm proud of you. He knows the sorrow and the suffering that you're walking through even now, and Jesus will be able to say to you, I know what you went through in cancer, and I saw how you trusted me, and he'll grab you around the shoulders and say, you followed me faithfully, and you'll be able to hug on his neck and know that your savior, the one who you've given your life to, is right in front of you. There he is. 
This isn't just the story of an empty tomb. It's the story of a Savior who is alive right now. He's alive. And in this moment, we see this beautiful turn from darkness to dawn, from despair to hope. There was hope after darkness. So why is this good news? Why why does Matthew put this in his gospel? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ Easter Sunday such a big deal? Let me give you four reasons why. If you're a Christian, these should help remind you what you know to be true and maybe can help kind of reconnect your heart to things intellectually that you know, but maybe you haven't felt in a while. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I wanna help you understand why the resurrection is like the centerpiece of what it means for the gospel to be good news and what it does and how it changes people's lives. Four reasons why it's good news. First, the resurrection showed that Jesus' words are trustworthy. They show that his words are trustworthy. The empty tomb, the resurrection, demonstrates that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He said he would be lifted up so he could draw men to himself in John chapter 3. He said that he would rise again after three days in Matthew chapter 12. He also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the things that got Jesus in trouble regularly and still gets Christians in trouble is the exclusive claim of Jesus to offer a path for forgiveness. Jesus is pretty clear. There are lots of ways to get to God. There's only one mediator, one sacrifice, one person who died on the cross, and one person who was raised again from the dead. As a result, Jesus has the exclusive claim of being able to offer forgiveness. And the empty tomb shows us that his words are worthy of our trust, that Jesus can be believed you're a Christian, you may have come here today and you know the Easter story is true, but if you're honest over the last number of days or weeks, maybe months, or even this last year, you've struggled believing God's word. You've struggled placing your faith and trusting in what the Bible says. All Christians doubt at some point in their life. They struggle with doubts on a regular basis. So what do you do with those doubts? You bring them to the empty tomb and say to those doubts, this is true. Jesus showed that his words are trustworthy. He can be believed. Secondly, the resurrection proved that Jesus' death had the approval of a holy God. His resurrection proved that his death had the approval of a holy God. What do we mean by that? Well, his death was a sacrifice, and that sacrifice had to be approved or granted as sufficient by a holy God. God's in the process of redeeming a world that has been marred by sin, and the only way to atone for sin is death. Jesus' death was unique in that he gave his life as a payment for other people's sins because he was sinless, and since since he didn't deserve to die, therefore his death, his sacrifice, can be applied to those who need to die 
but can't pay for their own sins. So the whole way that the gospel works, the reason why the cross can be applied to sinful people is because the cross was undeserved and Jesus should never have died. Because he did, God can take Jesus' death and apply it to the accounts of those who should have died. That's grace, that's good news. And the only reason we know that that worked is because the tomb is empty and Jesus conquered death. His death had the approval of a holy God. Third, the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross defeated sin. Sin and death are linked together. Sin, the desire to do things your own way, to hear the Bible, God says do this, and you're like, I don't want to do that, I want to do what I want to do. That's the essence of sin, it's rebellion against God. It's what's wrong with our world, it's what caused death to be a part of our world, Death is the consequence of sin. It's the wages of sin, according to Romans chapter six. So when Jesus conquers death, it's a sign, not just that death has been defeated. No, 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 it's a sign that what's underneath death has been defeated, namely sin. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus penetrates through death all the way down to sin and then comes back up, offering a way for people to be cleansed from their sins. It's a clear sign that not only has death been defeated, but sin has also been conquered. The resurrection shows us that sin has lost its power and a way of forgiveness is now offered. Here's how Romans 10 says it. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the empty tomb communicates that sin and death have both been defeated, and as a result, a new life is offered to those who would put their trust in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, it means this, that standing before you right now is the opportunity of a lifetime, quite frankly, the opportunity of eternal consequence, and that is this. How are you going to be right with God? You you can't self-atone. You can't do good things. You you can try, but every time you do something good, it's always gonna be marred in some way by your sinfulness. After all, how do you know when you give money away you're not doing that just so that you can look good? You come to church today, well, great job. And the minute you think, I went to church today, boom, you lost any credit for it. (laughs) You looked in the mirror and you're like, oh, I look, done. You, You just... You, you can't operate in life. Sin is so hardwired into who we are as human beings, it affects us in ways that we don't even know and understand. And the effect of that is, there's no way you can level the scales of divine justice in your life. Somebody else has to do it, and the good news of the gospel is that somebody did. His name is Jesus. He hung on a cross. He was raised again from the, day, from the dead in order to offer forgiveness for anyone who would say, I'm broken, I need a savior, you're the king, I'm coming to you. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises eternal life for the believer since death was conquered. The empty tomb is a symbol of hope for those who put their faith in Jesus. Some of you don't know it yet, but this is your last Easter. You don't know it, but there's not gonna be an Easter 2023. And just that thought 
suddenly opens up a little folder in your mind and heart. Whew. We all know that's true, unless Jesus returns. We all know there's coming a date when we're going to do our last Easter, and the next one we're not going to get anymore. And the question is, when you reach the end of that road, what is your hope in life and death? The hope offered to those who put their trust in Jesus is that death is simply the gateway to eternal life with my King. And so as hard and painful, as difficult and abhorrent as death is, Christians are able to look at the grave or a gravestone or their own future demise and say, this isn't the whole story. We're just in part one. Part two's coming. And I'm gonna get graduated to see my King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But if you're here today or listening and you're not yet a Christian, friend, what's your answer to that? I mean, you, you believe something. You believe that life just stops? You think you just sort of no longer exist? Every single person has a way that they resolve that issue. The way that Christians resolve it is to say this, my only hope is that I place my trust in Jesus and he promised that if I trust in him, I'm gonna have life. Here's how John puts it in 1 John, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So one of the beautiful things about this Sunday that we celebrate on Resurrection Day and that we celebrate really every Lord's Day when we gather is that Jesus' life became our life because our life is in him. So when he was raised, we are raised. That means that now sin no longer has its hold on you. So when temptations come this week, see through the temptation and see the empty tomb. Jesus calls you out of your tomb so he can take your sins and put them in the tomb. And if you're not yet a Christian, Friend, why not make today, Easter Sunday, 2022, the moment when suddenly the light went on, you saw your need, and you knew, I need to be born again. I need to trust in Jesus. And your story will be added to the millions of other stories, thousands of stories connected to our church of the way in which hope emerges after darkness. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's alive. And one day we're gonna see him. I don't know what he's gonna say when he sees us, but it might just be, greetings. Welcome home. King Jesus, we thank you for the way in which this text speaks so clearly and poignantly and even emotionally to what we 
know is true but need to be reminded about again today, namely that you are alive. So Lord, for Christians today, would you make this text just sing within them, give new levels of hope and grace and mercy because of what it means for our king to have vacated the tomb. And then Lord, for those who are in process even today of understanding what it means to becoming a Christian, would this be one further step in their journey? And maybe for some, the finish line where today they confess their sins, repent, turn to Jesus, making him Lord of their life. Lord, would you let that be the story of some, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.